Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg The Fraser Lawns Croquet Tournament The Fraser Lawns Croquet Tournament kicks off today, and anybody who's anybody knows that this posh affair is not only a celebrated display of pure, unbridled athleticism, equivalent to that of the Roman gladiators or the Greeks at Olympia, but is also a perfect place for picking up women. Now I don't mean your everyday run-of-the-mill dames, I'm talking sophisticated, well-bred ladies, women of class and status, not to mention, and most importantly, filthy rich. Myself being a man of very little means and dwindling prospects, I've developed over the years a hankering for the good life. Why, as far back as my last bounce check of $4.33, of which I purchased a secondhand beach towel and a fish taco from a place called Salty's, it has been my aspiration to live on Easy Street. I don't necessarily need to own property on said street, in fact I'd settle for a sublet. Now of course I would never go to one of these things without first doing my homework. Thumbing through the quotes and a number of financial bi-weeklies, it seems this year's guest list will be a fruitful and auspicious one. So I see it only appropriate that I don my whites and polish my mallet and begin forging my invitation. Firstly, there is Miss Rebecca Tisdale, a skinny little creature, meek and fair skin, nothing really to write home about. Then again, if one felt inclined and had the stationery, something could perhaps be penned to the neighbors instead. She stands by the club's famed oak tree in an unassuming white eyelet dress with lemonade in hand, exuding a quality of aloof pride that repels even the mosquitoes. Luckily, where her rocky mountain peaks fall flatter than the plains of Nebraska, one will surely find a kind heart and a generous checkbook, a combination that has her name springing from my lips with boyish glee. She comes from the South, where her family made their fortune in the peach smuggling business. In the 40s, her father transported bushels of illegal Georgia-grown peaches across state lines during the post-war tomato peach feud, which pitted Southerner against Southerner in a dispute between vitamin A and C. Tennesseans lived by the tomato seed, but craved the forbidden nectar, and the Tisdale Empire grew. Growers feared the name and the man behind it. Her father became a legend, the figure of countless spook stories future tomato growers undoubtedly heard about in school. While back on Georgia soil, his name was spoken equal to that of a hero. Hombre con un sueño, or man with a dream, rang from the hearts of the poor orchard workers. Though, like all good organizations, the mesocarp had to hit the fan eventually, and for the Tisdale crime family, such a collapse came sooner than later, with the drought of 59. Lord Tisdale was arrested at the Buckshot Diner where he was found eating, of all sandwiches, a BLT. Before his trial and conviction, Mr. Tisdale placed his funds into an offshore account that's being guarded by a series of large coconut trees and a surprisingly smart bird with an unusual liking for french fries. Dreaming of this bounty of unaccounted for wealth, I can't help but see the acid-tongued Miss Rebecca Tisdale as a strong candidate. Standing by the buffet, discreetly hoovering a wedge of white cake, is Miss Abigail Plum, 
a jolly sort whose hunger for life and caramelized nuts fills a body with ageless vigor and vitality and a fear of wearing shoes with an open toe. She's the kind of girl that makes you question the integrity of your patio furniture, the kind of sweet and mild manner beauty that makes a union with her seem simply enchanting and extremely uncomfortable, especially in a broom closet. The kind of girl that keeps you smiling from sunup to sundown and has you rethinking measurements when preparing a dinner for two. She's an insatiable woman whose girth and appetite are conceded only to the size of her bank account, making her a true contender for receiving my love. Her money is old, the best kind, and began with her grandfather's investments in the timber industry, with the founding of the Plum Toothpick Company. The proud son of Washington's Oakey Ridge, Harvey Randolph Plum created a multinational brand dedicated to the extraction of left-behind food particles. An ironic thought given the unsightly spectacle that is his granddaughter moments after meeting a tray of deviled eggs or lemon custard puffs. The sporty yet stately woman on the featured center court, graciously mopping the floor with a group of portly men in Bermuda-length shorts, who appear none too happy with the fact they're losing to a woman, but who seem rather happy about the shorts, is Marion von Klaus. A member of the von Klaus royal family and first daughter of the monarch of Amsforth, this noble and self-assured maiden possesses not only a mouth-watering hoard of ancestral jewelry, some of which adorn a hand every man would kiss and tell, but also an unquenchable thirst for adventure. At the age of 19, she became the first female to fly a solo hot air balloon from Frankfurt to Hamburg. When asked why Hamburg, she replied, because I ran out of relish. At age 20, she won the Malandalo Rally, a prestigious auto race along the African coast of the Mediterranean. The other racers rolled into the finishing city of Carloville four hours later, to the side of Miss Von Klaus sitting at a course-side cafe, slurping champagne with a mouthful of oysters, recapping the race to a swarm of journalists. An avid hunter and gameswoman, a term she coined in the inaugural issue of Outdoor Feminist, the name Marion Von Klaus is held in high regard within the sporting community. She was the first person to track down and document the legendary red-haired yak of Southern Mongolia's Anaboro mountain range. She lived among the beasts of the snow-capped hills and survived on cumin salad and ginger ice. During the annual Wellington Meadows Golf Tournament, she shot a Saturday round of 59, and later that evening during a spirited game of nine ball, won Edmund Lauder's treasured racehorse, Don't Skimp on the Mustard. Due to the fumigation that was taking place in the billiard room, the match transpired in the resort Stinson Hall during the dinner service, where Mr. Liam Marlowe received a nasty bruise on his forehead thanks to a runaway cantaloupe which stood in for the eight ball. Princess Von Klaus took victory when she pocketed Sir Hugo Lofton's chocolate cream pie into his wife's lap. She once swam the Bear Bay Channel in the middle of springtime during the blue suckerfish mating season. When she reached the Dansworth banks, her toes were so swollen she had to be carried out of the water and was forced to wear thong sandals for the remainder of the year, which made quite the scene at the royal wedding of Prince Albert, Duke of Eatonton, and Lady Elizabeth. The mere thought of trying to keep up with such an expansive and worldly woman is enough to send most inexperienced men packing. Fortunately, I found that love trumps hardship, and one doesn't utter the word adversity when dealing with a woman worth more than a small country or at the very least a province with a seat at the Embassy of Nation, or its own table at Lily's Pancake House. The shapely woman with curves both north and south, standing by the shade tents, is Miss Maxine Hardwick, 
a lovable, cockeyed beauty who's slow on the uptake and quick on the champagne. This mixture of indiscretion and unladylike conduct, though rousing and presenting a want for Polaroids, has built a certain reputation for the prominent daytime game show hostess. A reputation that when paired with a heap of accumulated wealth in the form of taxable prizes and exotic giveaways, one can't help but wonder what's behind door number three. And though her attic light flickers dimly, her benevolent nature more than makes up for it. A helpful trait I'm sure to exploit while I present myself as a prince or ambassador from some faraway land plagued with pestilence and famine and no decent sports teams. Her television personality makes her a true frontrunner in my decision, as I've always wanted to see my name amidst the society pages, especially the gossip column of Ida Miller. She spins a tale the likes of which nobody can hold a candle to, unless it's burned at both ends. Miss Hardwick's celebrity, though wavering at times, has made her a kissable cash cow of endorsements and royalties, a steady flow of funds that will surely provide for us both until we're old and gray and suffering from a lack of buoyancy. One of the finest examples of cold-hearted indifference among the club's gentry is Miss Libby Mayweather, a stoic dish with bland expression and a sophisticated proficiency in gold digging, a talent she's perfected over the years of love and loss and lace gin glasses. She sits on the bench by the lawn's long-revered Alice Pond, legs crossed, mingling with a group of interested and unsuspecting elderly gentlemen, weaving a web of seduction and promises of handcuffs. She paralyzes her prey with intellect and charm, and more effectively, talks of her new strapless brassiere and how it works on the same principles as a netted beach ball caddy. To go to bed with this woman would mean certain death or alimony, both of which I've been advised by my legal counsel to avoid. Nevertheless, her vast swell of bequeathed assets is too tantalizing a prospect to simply ignore, even though a life with her may mean no life at all. It's a chance one must take in this situation. After all, it's high time I get over this inane hang-up regarding life and my own extinction. Then again, with town squares adorning gold statues of me generously depicted in victorious pose, who needs immortality? She's a willful and determined woman with a track record to prove it. Why, if one wandered down Melody Lane, they would surely find her signature spider hair clips on the nightstands of every eligible bachelor over 70 with an amassed fortune and a terrible heart condition. There was Joseph L.P. Tate, a notable hotel giant with assets aplenty, mainly local and centralizing around his midriff. An unusually brisk character full of good humor and malted candies, the late Mr. Tate passed down the fruits of his labor to Libby, his young new wife, after finally succumbing to a 30-year battle with an uncontrollable lust for giblets and bed. Then there was the Dairy King, Samuel Littlefield, founder of the Littlefield Dairy Farms and owner of the world's first buttermilk bath, which he soaked in each evening before bed. Unfortunately, this nightly regimen made Mr. Littlefield susceptible to bad dreams, and one evening took a tongue lashing from 10,000 blue kittens while on Candy Cane Lane. And finally, there was Walter Birch, the famous Southern Gothic novelist from Mississippi, whose celebrated works include Madame Ruby's Midnight Summon and The Alligator Tango. And finally, one mustn't forget the unobtrusive and recently accepted figure within the Fraser Lawns elite, Miss Rose Leibowitz, a shy and modest number with mousy features and a strip mall perm, a girl whose mere existence is news to most. Luckily, I subscribe to a variety of papers, big and small, and have a particular fondness for page four. 
She loiters by the service entrance with considerable trepidation, planting herself behind a series of potted palms and a large, sweatered man whose build resembles that of a deep freeze. A classic fish-out-of-water scenario, Miss Leibowitz's riches are new to the scene and came to her courtesy of a grocery store sweepstakes put on by the Diamond Dixie supermarket chain in conjunction with Mayfair Foods. Her task was simple, redeem the most coupons at any participating Diamond Dixie store during the current year. Her victory of 20,000 plus coupons came easy with the help of the Daily Saver and a weekly misplaced bundle of discount shoppers, thanks to the willing grace of a fancy postman. She was given the title American Coupon Queen and was awarded a small fortune in groceries for life. Like a weed among flowers, Miss Leibowitz innocently announces her arrival to high society by making nervous chit-chat, firstly with a member of the club's kitchen staff, then with herself, and finally with a half-eaten turkey sandwich. To unveil this timid beauty's true appeal, one must look past her sad and objectionable uncertainty, which she unsuccessfully attempts to mask with a sort of periodic swinging of her arms, the occasional bounce of her shoulders, and an ungodly number of references to the state of Maryland, and focus on the intact and unpolluted prosperity that arrives each month to her mailbox in the form of a small, corporately endorsed check. A seemingly futile conquest given the aforementioned list of flush women brimming with cash and the will to spend it, but then again, green is green, and when it's coupled with naivete, it seems that much sweeter. Of course, I would probably have to settle for a townhouse downtown and give up my dream of a house in the country, a sacrifice I wanted to avoid but would be willing to make. That is, if the help was live-in and the master bath was big enough for a collection of harps, a hobby I'll undoubtedly be starting after the arrival of the ostrich rugs. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg with an introduction by Nicole Kalasich, and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Allenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com. <laughs>